0: Amen. If you are able, please rise again as we read God's Word together from Zechariah 12 and in the first verse of chapter 13 of Zechariah. Hear the reading of God's Word. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadarimin on the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all of the families that are left, each by itself And their wives by themselves. On that day, there should be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our great God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would carry your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to these people gathered here today. Watch over my words, guide them, protect them, mold and shape lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Did you know, little fun facts for you here this morning, that your eyes can differentiate between 10 million different colors? I thought there were only 64 colors in the box of crayons. I didn't know there was over 10 million. The human eye blinks an average of... Four million, two hundred thousand times a year. This means that if you were given a nickel for every time you blinked, you'd make around two hundred thousand dollars a year. Sign me up. Eyes are made up of over two million working parts. And the most important little fun fact about eyes, did you know that pirates wore earrings because they thought it helped them see better? Just so you know, pirates. Pirates. Or maybe you heard the saying, seeing is believing, or there's a phrase in sports, he passes the eye test. Meaning the person's statistics may say one thing and they may prove this person is a really great player. But then you go and see them in person and, and yeah, you watch them play and you're like, yeah, he's way better than everybody else. He passes the eye test. You see him and you understand and your eyes tell you that yes, he can play. Our eyes are important to us, and seeing is important to us. Passing the eye test is important to us. For us to see something many times confirms the reality of the situation, doesn't it? I have to see it to believe it. You may not actually believe that, but that's what we feel most times. I have to see it in order for me to actually believe it. Here in Zechariah 12, the Lord wants us to use our eyes, the things that can differentiate 10 million different colors, has 2 million working parts, all of these fun facts. Just go Google fun facts about eyes and you'll see it, the lists are endless. The Lord wants us with our eyes to see something here in Zechariah chapter 12. He wants, to, he wants us to see something amazing. He wants us to believe something amazing. He wants us to understand and to live out something What is it He wants us to see? He wants us to see Him. But not just Him. He wants us to see Him in a unique and special kind of way. Did you catch that as we read Zechariah 12 together? He wants us to see Him in an incredible kind of way. Did you see how He wants us to see Him? He wants us to see Him pierced pierced he wants us to see him slain he wants us to see him as the one sacrificed upon a tree this is how the lord wants us to see him this morning in the year 1707 isaac watts saw with his own eyes the tree to which the lord wants us to see this morning And through his eyes, which puts images to pen to paper, we now have some of the most wonderful words ever penned by any poet, perhaps ever in our country or any other country. Isaac says these words. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count the loss and pour contempt on all my pride. When Isaac looked at the cross, these are the words that came from his mouth onto a paper, so that we sing these words even here today. When I survey, when I look at the cross, the cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, all that I have is, 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 is but lost. And I, I pour contempt on all my pride. This is deep sorrow, friends. When we survey the wondrous cross, there is much for us to consider. There is much for us to capture. There is much for us to gaze at. There is much for us to understand and to see when we cast our, grave, our gaze upon the blood-soaked tree. There is much mourning. And there are many tears shed at the foot of the cross. This week I found myself in tears yet again. I found myself as I've gotten older, as I'm getting older, the tears come so quickly anymore. I find myself crying a lot lately for many different reasons. But this week, My tears came as I imagined being a dad of a second, third, or fourth grader in Uvalde, Texas. Going to pick up my child and being told that I can't. I was trying to imagine the hurt. I was trying to imagine the pain. The pain of a parent, of a grandparent of a brother or a sister, of an aunt or an uncle. And I found myself crying. Because I can't imagine. In the conclusion of Zechariah 12, this scene that has played out before us is similar to one that we've witnessed all week. It's a scene of mothers and fathers trying to console one another. This is what we just read in Zechariah 12. It's a scene of horrendous agony and pain, of weeping and sorrow, of mourning, deep mourning. This is what Zechariah 12 is reaching into. It's reaching into our lives this week as we mourn as a state and as a country and as a world, yet again facing tragedy of mourning of mothers and fathers not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. Their lives completely devastated and shattered. Zechariah 12 reaches right into that and pulls that out into the open and says, this is what morning looks like. Zechariah 12 is a scene of hopes and dreams dashed. Dashed into a lifeless pit of agony and horror. Zechariah 12 is a scene of isolation. Over and over again we read, by themselves, by itself, by herself, by himself. How many in our country are lonely and isolated in fear of family being torn apart? As heartbreaking as the language is in the middle of Zechariah 12, it's bookended by remarkable grace, believe it or not, from Zechariah 12:10 to 13:1. there's bookendings of grace in the middle. There's great and terrible tragedy and mourning, but yet on either end, there's grace and mercy and love and care and kindness by the Lord our God. Chapter 1, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 13, we're told that it's a pouring out of grace like a fountain of healing. So, the structure of this little section of scripture that we just read is really this grace is outpoured. Terrible, terrible mourning and isolation, and fear and sorrow and hurt and pain, and then cleansing from sin and uncleanness. This is what we just read. This is what is about here this morning. So how are we to look at all of this? How are we to look at our world? How are we to look at Zechariah 12 and 13 verse 1? As I look at this text, it seems to me the Lord wants us to see Him for who He is this morning. As I look at Zechariah 12 and the beginning of 13, the Lord is saying to us, look at Him and never look away. Gaze your eyes upon the cross and never look away. Keep your gaze upon a cross and never look away. He wants us to never look away when life doesn't meet expectations. Look at the cross. When we hurt, look at the cross. When we're full of anxiety, survey the cross. When we're scared, survey the cross. When we're tired, look at the cross and never stop. He wants us to look at Him in all things because He pours out His grace and He pours out His mercy. He wants us to look at Him because He is the one who is pierced. Who is the one that opens up a fountain of grace and mercy when we're scared, when we're tired, when we're alone, when we're depressed, when we mourn, when we cry, when we laugh? Look at the cross. I wonder to myself this week how often do I survey the cross? Honestly, not nearly as I should. If I did, I believe that I would find myself much more orientated to the rhythms of the Lord's will and path. So, the question I have for all of us, as I ask myself the very same question how often do you survey the cross? How often do you look at the cross? Do we find ourselves feeling guilty and dirty as we look at the cross? Or do we humbly fall at the foot of the cross as we're washed from the fountain that cleanses us from sin and uncleanness? And so I'm going to ask you to join me this morning as I survey the cross. As I look at the cross through the words of Zechariah 12 in the beginning of chapter 13. Will you join with me this morning as I ask a simple question? What does it mean to look upon the Lord. Zechariah 12 says to look upon the Lord. Do you see that in verse 10? What does that mean? What does it mean to survey the cross? What does it mean to look at the cross? The book of Zechariah, if you remember, when we started this some months ago, started off in chapter 1 of verse 3 with a really simple message. Do you remember? The people had returned back from exile, back into Jerusalem. And the Lord says to the people as they return back to a war-torn city, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. The call hasn't changed. The call hasn't changed in Zechariah, and it hasn't changed for us. The call still goes out to each and every person of Christ. Return to me, and I will return to you. Because he desires to be with you. He desires to be with us. This is also how Jesus opened up his earthly ministry. If you recall in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 7, do you remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've all heard that repentance is is turning from sin and towards something else, but repentance is more than just turning from. It's it's turning to Jesus. And it's turning to new obedience. This is the call that went out to Zechariah from the get-go. It's the call that Jesus has given to each and every one of us. So as we look at the cross, the call then is to return, to confess, to return to Jesus, to repent. True repentance then is turning to Jesus for new obedience, not just simply turning from sin. To look at the cross then means to repent. And that means to turn away from the things that have us run away from the cross and turn towards Jesus, to cast our gaze upon the cross. This is repentance, to to move our gaze away from disobedience and towards Jesus and towards the cross. To look at the cross means to repent. True repentance then is turning to Jesus. This describes the action of repentance. But perhaps more vital to the life of the believer in repentance is is the heart of repentance. True repentance is godly sorrow, the kind of sorrow that we're reading about in Zechariah chapter 12. In verse 10 of chapter 12 it says, They shall mourn and weep bitterly. God always wants our hearts. In Proverbs 20, 23, the Lord says, My son, give me your heart. Moses also says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. David says in Psalm 51, For you will do not delight in sacrifices or I to give it. You would not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. What does it mean to look at the cross? It means to repent with a broken heart. In this section, the prophet offers two illustrations for us of broken and contrite hearts of the kind that David was talking about. The first is that of parents who have just lost children. And I always find it a bit interesting how God works in and through Scripture, even in contemporary contexts, of the images that we've seen on on the television this week of distraught parents, of horrendous tragedy, We read in Zechariah 12, this is what repentance looks like. To mourn our misery. To mourn our sin. This is a deep and utterly painful misery that we experience. Yet he's saying that as we look to the cross, we too are to weep for the deep and utter pain that we have in our sin and misery with the same level of agony even as someone who's just lost a child. We are to cast our gaze upon a pierced Savior and consider something that the only Son of God is hanging on a tree, is pierced. This then is likened to the mother, who, like the mother, in rural Texas, weeps. For the only Son of God is pierced for you and me our sins, our guilt, our shame. This is the place where we look in our sin and in our guilt. The second illustration is what we find in verse 11 in the plains of Megiddo. This is the place where King Josiah, the last of the good kings of Israel, was laid to rest. Hope had been dashed for the people of Israel. No longer did they have a good king. They were faced with terrible kings. And so they wept and they mourned. For the light had been squashed. The nation no longer was following after the Lord. They lost their way and Josiah was the last connection that they had to the Lord. And there was much weeping and there was much mourning. Our sin and our shame caused this kind of sorrow and suffering. But this is not sorrow for the sake of sorrow. It is the sorrow that leads us where? To the foot of the cross. It's not just let's cry and weep about it, but it should lead us towards something. To cast our gaze yet again to the cross. To survey His grace, to survey His mercy and love poured down in the middle of our tears and our agony. In Second Corinthians, Paul says, "For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret." See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Godly sorrow, as someone put it this week, as I read this week, is really this is a wonderful quote. Godly sorrow is the garden in which all sorts of good fruits are grown, especially repentance that leads to salvation. How do we look at the cross? In repentance. In godly sorrow for our sins. With a repentant heart and a repentant spirit, the soil of our hearts is indeed cultivated. And the Spirit then does incredible and remarkable things and produces amazing fruit. Here in Zechariah, he makes it clear that it is the Spirit who is the one producing this fruit, as well as harvesting it. He says, I will pour out a Spirit of grace and please for mercy. How do we look at the cross? We receive the Spirit out of our repentance. This is a spiritual working, which is what Zechariah calls as the spiritual grace and pleas for mercy. Spurgeon says these words. It's always a creation of the Holy Spirit. There never was any real godly sorrow, such as worketh repentance, acceptable unto God, except that which was a result of the Holy Spirit's own work within the soul. What Zechariah and Spurgeon are saying is that our response in humility and grace is not an outworking of some pricking of our own thoughts or emotions. It's not something in our own deep down inside of us that somehow works itself out into receiving the Spirit or repentance. It's not some emotional product of our souls or our conscience that illuminates us or awakens us to some new reality. It's the work of the Holy Spirit producing us Producing in us a heart of repentance. All that to say, when our hearts are turned by the Holy Spirit to the hearts and lives of repentance and mercy, it has a natural and logical outcome. When we gaze at the cross and repentance and the Holy Spirit is doing work in our lives, something logically happens to us. Two things, actually. The first response is that we receive the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. The Spirit's not one to be denied. His work is often subtle and in the background. yet He's the one that moves our hearts and our lives. It is His work that molds and shapes us into the kind of people that are more like Christ. It's His work that brings to light the things in our lives that need to be repented of. When we use words like receive the Holy Spirit... It's not as though we make room for Him. We don't open up a section in our hearts to say, Lord Jesus, now send Your Holy Spirit, now that after I've made room for You, come on in. That's not the way it works. When the Holy Spirit determines to mold and shape a heart and a life, He will do it because He is God. And He's the third person of the Trinity. He's the one that moves our hearts. He's the one that changes us. He's the one that molds our lives into accord with the will of the Father. And if that then is the case, then the second thing is true that I just mentioned. There's a logical step that takes place. When our hearts are changed by the Holy Spirit, the hearts of repentance, it leads to prayer. As we look at the cross and repentance and the Holy Spirit doing work in our lives, it leads to prayer. This is what true repentance looks like. True and godly repentance always sets the sinner to prayer. Always. Let's look at a couple different examples of the opposite of that. Pharaoh, we know the story of Pharaoh, right? God hardened his heart. And on that last and final terrible plague, he finally acquiesced and let the people go. But do you remember what he said to Moses? He says, you go pray to your God. And he cried he didn't pray to God he suffered in his misery and his sorrow and his suffering this showed that his remorse was not for his sins but the result of his sin his remorse was not due to his own actions but because of the tragedy and the consequences that came upon him how many of us do that we, re- we ask we for forgiveness when we're caught Because we cast our gaze other than the cross. Or even Judas. After he realized what he had done, he threw his silver back into the temple and he ran to a field and he hung himself on a tree in the middle of a field. His was real grief, his was real despair but was not grief and despair of a repentant sinner. He didn't run into his arms of his Savior, asking forgiveness. Matthew tells us that he was seized with remorse, and that Judas said, I have sinned. True mourning through the work of the Holy Spirit drives us back to the cross, drives us back to grace and the outpouring of this fountain of mercy. True mourning drives us back to grace, True mourning for our sin drives us to forgiveness. Then we think of David, confronted with the horrible sins as he was in Psalm 51. Quite the opposite of Judas and quite the opposite of Pharaoh. Cast not your Holy Spirit from me, Lord. Be near to me. Come close to me. Draw near to me in my time of hurt and my time of pain. He cast his gaze upon his Savior and asked that the Lord would be closer and closer and closer. Do not drive yourself away from me. He runs to confession and deep remorse and asks the Lord not to turn away, but to come close in his time of need. Friends, this morning, my prayer is that in our struggle with sin, we do not run to the nearest field, we do not deny our hurt and our pain, but rather we look at the cross. We survey the cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, for this is why he hung on the tree. For my sin and yours also. And that as we gaze upon that cross, we draw nearer to him. We don't back away from the cross and see the horror and the pain and the misery, but we step closer and closer, and closer to the cross. So as we look at the cross, we repent. We receive the work of the Holy Spirit. But we also rejoice. This section of Zechariah's prophecy ultimately and finally wants us to go just there, to the cross. And the prophet wants us to mourn, like the mother or father who has just lost a child. For if and when we truly survey the cross, we should mourn. For the cross is where the perfect and only Son is pierced. Is crucified. And dying. Why? Because of my guilt and my shame. What is it about the cross that causes us to mourn? There's a stark contrast on the cross, isn't there? For at the cross, we realize that we are the ones that should be on the cross. Yet, it is the beautiful, holy, spotless Lamb of God that hangs on the tree. He is utterly pure, and He is pierced. He is the one who is so holy the angels hide their faces, and he is pierced. He is the one without sin, and he is pierced. He is humble, and he is pierced. Paul tells us through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Mark tells us that he was filled with compassion as he hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And so I wonder this week, do we grow callous to the things around us? Do we grow callous to the cross? Yet as we look at the cross, there is one hanging there that truly does not deserve to be there. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. We mourn because beauty and perfection are shattered because of our sin, our shame, our guilt. We mourn for what he endures. He is falsely accused. He is rejected. He is mocked. He is beaten. His face spit upon His head, a crown of thorns thrust upon it. His arms are stretched across a beam. His wrists have nails piercing them. His feet have a spike driven through them. He is shattered. It's here where we see grief. It is here as we survey the cross, the magnitude and the situation and the weight of what we have done becomes reality. The spit, the punches, the thorns, the nails, the spike have my name written upon them. Yet, it is determined that our iniquity, all of it, was laid upon Him. Not on you, not on me. If you sorrow as you survey the cross, then yours is a heart that rejoices. For it is upon the cross where we truly see grace and mercy outpoured. It is on the cross where redeeming love of God is evidenced in terrible grace. Friends, this morning, only someone who looks upon the cross with tears and agony and sees complete salvation ultimately rejoices. So I ask you again, do you survey the cross today? Do you see your Savior's grace? Do you see your Savior's love? Do you see His mercy shed for you? If that's what you see, then rejoice in salvation. Rejoice in grace. Rejoice in mercy. For He has taken your sin and guilt and shame upon Himself and has set you free. It is here where we are made new. It is here where we know that the... I like that. another quote. I'm just going to quote for you here real quick. It is here where we see that the tawdry rags of self-vindication are thrown into the bin. And I love the words of Rock of Ages. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill by law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. This then is why we rejoice, isn't it? Because through grace and mercy poured out on the cross, we are set free. It is as we survey the wondrous cross that we realize yet again our sins are taken away from us our sins are removed they are cast as far as the east is from the west and they are thrown into the depths of the ocean never to be seen of again because Jesus took the cross and so when we survey the cross this is what we see and this is what we proclaim that the spotless righteousness of God sets us free and is now yours And so when the Lord looks at you, He doesn't see the hurt. He doesn't see the pain. He doesn't see the guilt or the shame. He sees His Son, Jesus Christ, and His righteousness given to you. This is why we rejoice. And this is why in 13 verse 1, it says it pours out and cleans you from sin and uncleanness. This is how grace and mercy are poured out this day. And it says, one day, one day, every eye will indeed look upon Him. So friends, this morning, may we survey the cross and see grace poured out. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank You that You took the cross for us. so that we could be set free. We thank you that you poured out your grace and mercy upon us, that we might be set free. What love, what mercy, is shown by you to us. For this we rejoice. May we never cast our gaze away from the cross.